Thank you guys for setting the tone for this morning as we continue uh, our message from Matthew 22. Last week, if you were with us, we began discussing the greatest commandment. Uh, Jesus was asked, what's the great commandment? And he responded that it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And uh, we talked about each of those aspects, what it means to love the Lord with all your heart, to love him with all your soul, to love him with all your mind and all your strength. Um, But we reserved the end of what Jesus said for this week, and we'll conclude uh, this morning with this passage. And uh, he simply states, to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's read that passage together. I basically gave it to you, but let's read the words uh, in Matthew 22. Turn with me there, and when you find that, go ahead and stand. We're going to read 34 through verse 40. It reads, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time of of singing praises, um, Lord, and we thank you for your spirit that is here with us, Uh, Lord, your divine presence that comes uh, in the midst of believers who assemble themselves in your name. Lord, we know that you're here to meet with us this morning, and we pray that your word would just pierce our hearts, Lord, let it cut through uh, the hard outer shell that becomes calloused and resistant to change. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would just speak to us as only you can, and Lord, uh, hide me behind the cross of Calvary, let people see your words and them alone, not mine, and Father, I just pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. So as I stated earlier, this morning we were looking, we we're turning from the love of God to looking at how that is played out in the second part of that commandment, which states to love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to cover four quick questions this morning, and after that I'll turn it back over for a time of invitation uh, to the pates. And the first question is, who is your neighbor? And the reason I ask that question, and the reason we need to answer that question is because it comes up naturally. In fact, let's turn and read in Luke. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And just like we referenced this last week because it uh, records this same answer, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, And also loving neighbor as self. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus very rarely just answers the question, right? He answers the question with another question. And so he says, you know, what do you think about that? 
what's written. And so this man says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But then it says here in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So the question comes up naturally, right? This man comes to put Jesus to the test, and Jesus uh, has him answer his own question. And he gives the same answer that Jesus gives in Matthew when he's asked, and he actually gives a straightforward answer. And as I explained, there were a lot of passages uh, outside of the biblical uh, corpus that we have, the, like old writings from Jesus' day that actually reference these two laws together, loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor. Those naturally went together uh, in the minds of rabbis during Jesus' day. And so a lot of people are very familiar with these two items being side by side. Not everybody would have been, but those who had studied the law, they certainly knew. And so this man knows the answer to the question. The greatest command is loving God and loving people. But then he asks that question, who is my neighbor? And the funny thing is, when I'm reading this, I get the idea that he's got someone in mind that he doesn't want to love. And so he's trying to get very specific here. It's like, who qualifies as neighbor? Who can I refrain from demonstrating this love to? Just so we can be clear and I don't get in any trouble with God. And so Jesus gets an opportunity to answer this question. Who is your neighbor? And it's in the remaining text here in Luke chapter 10. Jesus replied to him in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, I have always been fascinated with this passage. Uh, for one reason, because Jesus doesn't straight out answer the question. He asks more questions. But then he gives a story instead of answering the question. And at the end of the story, he asks this guy a question, but it's not even the same question. So I, I've always had trouble articulating what's going on here. But this man says, who is the neighbor? He wants to know who. Who do I have to love and who can I hate? He wants these very clearly defined categories so that he knows who he can love and who he can refrain from loving or just maybe not hating, but he doesn't have to worry about loving them. He can just ignore them. And so Jesus tells the story of a man. The man is nameless. The man is left for dead. So you don't have to know this man. In fact, this man's not even real. It's, it's a story that Jesus is telling 
to get a point across. But things like this probably happened all the time. Uh, But I don't know that Jesus has any one particular man in mind when he's telling this story. And so a man is left for dead and a priest comes by. Now he mentions a priest. Priests were these highly appointed and respected people in Israel who were responsible for mediating between God and man. They were supposed to make sure that humans had a right relationship with God and that they were connected with God and they were able to worship God and honor God with their lives. And this priest walks right on by. He's supposed to be the first person in line who would show up to help in a situation like this because he's mediating the goodness of God to people. But it doesn't tell us necessarily why he passed by, what he was doing. Uh, It just says, now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I guess in his mind, when he asked the question, who is my neighbor, that guy didn't qualify. And so he kept going. Uh, Perhaps the priest was too busy carrying out those highly priestly duties. And so now Jesus says, well, then a Levite comes by. Now, the priest probably would have been a Levite because the priesthood comes from the Levites. But not all Levites were the high priest or the priesthood. Some of them were just servants to the priests. Um, But the priestly families came out from the tribe of Levi. The Levites did not have their own land. They were one of the 12 tribes that did not inherit anything. But they were given cities within the other land allotments throughout Israel. And they lived there and they administered uh, the priestly duties and mediated the presence of God to the people around them. So that everybody had access to God through the old covenant and the way that uh, sacrifices and that sort of thing operated back then. Uh, So people without land and without possessions who were really living off of the tithes of all these other people, you'd think that they would care for their well-being, but the Levite, just like the priest, passes by on the other side. Perhaps he had very well-defined categories of who his neighbor is and who is not his neighbor, and this man did not qualify. Then Jesus really sticks a dagger in the heart here. He says, a Samaritan was passing by. Now, if you don't know a lot about the history between Israel and the Samaritans, and I'm not going to go into the fine details, but let's just say that they didn't like each other. The Samaritans thought very lowly of the Israelites, and the Israelites thought very lowly of the Samaritans. Uh, The Samaritans were considered traitors because they became... uh, kind of mingled with the enemy, Assyria, when they came in and destroyed the northern kingdom back in uh, 720 B.C. And so when that happened, a lot of the people who were remaining in Israel and those who tried to keep their ethnic race pure, they really thought lowly of these half-breeds who had more or less married the enemy and started families with them. And so that's where we get these Samaritan people. And there's been bad blood for years and years and years. They even separated and started their own temple cults and all of this stuff. They believe the high places uh, where you worship God were on their own mountain, not in Jerusalem. And so some people, when they were traveling to north Israel, they would go around Samaria. They'd cross over the Jordan River and they'd go through Moab before they would actually enter into the region of uh, Samaria. And so Samaritans were no good in the mind of a Jew. 
But yet here Jesus uses them as a teaching illustration. A Samaritan, seasoned Israelite, someone that he should by nature hate. And he chooses to show love and compassion and care for this person. And not only does he spend his own money on him, but he extends a line of credit saying, hey, if he needs more things, give it to him and I'll be back to pay the debt that is owed when I pass through again. And so Jesus turns around after giving this illustration. There's a lot more in that text we could unpack, but we need to move on. Uh, At the end of it, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man answers the one who showed mercy. But if you pay attention here, Jesus doesn't answer the question, who is your neighbor? Because that man's looking for the answer in terms of the person. Jesus said, which of these proved to be a neighbor? He turns the question from a noun into a verb. He doesn't answer the question, who should you show love to? He answers the question uh, about which attribute is the most neighborly here. Who is acting in a loving way that conforms with the character of God? And deep down inside, this man, even though he wanted to justify himself, he knew what the answer was. Even though deep down inside, he had no sympathy for the people of Samaria. He had no reason to want to cater to the Samaritans. And he would have loved to break ties and and make them look bad in any story that was given. He knew deep down inside that the answer was not the priest, who he would have highly respected, not the Levites, whom were, uh, you know, these people of high repute, but this social outcast is the one who is actually loving. And so the moral of the story, when we ask ourselves, who is our neighbor? It's not about proximity. It's not about social status. It's not about religious affiliation. It's not even about holiness. We don't know if this guy was a good moral character who fell among bandits and thieves or if this was a scoundrel who was, you know, the the sleazeball of the town. We don't know, nor does it matter. The fact is, this Samaritan who showed kindness and love proved to be neighborly. It's not about who is your neighbor. It's about who can you be neighborly to. Who can you show love to? Because if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you're going to, in response, show love to humanity. And so you might ask the question, maybe it's easier to think about it like this, who has been a neighbor to you? Who has been a neighbor to you? Who has shown kindness and love and compassion to you in your life? And you think about that, and then what you want to do is turn around and be that person when other people are in need. And there are people in need all of the time. All you have to do is be watchful for the opportunities to go and to be helpful. I've been in those situations. I've had people, you know, recently, my lawnmower breaks down. Dan comes over uh, to help. He was no help, but he tried, right, Dan? Okay, but no one was any help, to, to be fair. Even the, the professionals, they were no help. Uh, you got the lawnmower story last week. You want that story, you got to go back and watch the video. Uh, needless to say, my lawnmower drives backwards. I'll give you that as a teaser. 
I, I've had times where electrical stuff was going awry in my house. And there are people, you know, Sam Larson has come on, over on many occasions. And, you know, he just whips it all right up. I don't have to worry about the thing. He, he can whip it up. Uh, I've got so many people in this church. I can start name dropping. Almost everybody in here has been neighborly to me over the past nine years that I've been here. And uh, hopefully I've been neighborly to some of you and I've been able to help you out in times of need. And that's what is going on. And, and we're inside the church here. And so that's really expected among us inside of the church. But what about outside of the church? Because the Samaritan was not the same religious affiliation as this guy who would have been struck by bandits on the road from Jericho. And so we need to be looking for opportunities outside of the church walls to be neighborly and show love and compassion as well. And so the next question naturally comes, you might say, why? Why should I be neighborly? You know, a lot of times people get in bad situations because of their own stupidity, their own bad choices, their own uh, lack of common sense, uh, or maybe it's just their own bad luck, but that's their bad luck, and I have bad luck happen to me, and I deal with it. They have bad luck happen to them. They deal with their own. Let's just keep it like that. And so some people have that mindset, and if you're a hardworking person who is, you know, you've done it all yourself, you're a self-made man, I understand where that thinking comes from. Uh, some people work really, really hard to get to where they are at, and they don't want to lose it all overnight because someone else squandered theirs. I get that. I understand that. So why should you be neighborly in this type of situation? The first reason is because Jesus was. Enough said. We could move on to the next point. Jesus was neighborly. Jesus showed love and compassion to a bunch of people who squandered theirs away. You know, we had no morality to give to God. We had no spiritual life to give to God. We were completely, completely um, worthless, spiritually speaking. And Jesus came and he gave to us. If you guys are trying to fix the audio back there, it's not going to work because we're recording on a phone now. <laughs> Uh, in case that's what's going on back there. So, we had technical issues, as I expected, because everybody's gone. And so uh, Pastor Scott's gone, so he can't help deal with this. And we had brand new internet installed last night or the night before, which, of course, is going to cause problems. So our streaming thing is a mess. And if people are telling you they can't hear it at all, then you can just cut the feed on the uh, phone right there, and we'll start over second service so you can let them know that. Um, okay, moving on, though. Why should you love your neighbor? Not only was Jesus a loving, compassionate person who showed love on multiple occasions by healing people and meeting their needs where they were, and he did not care whether they were holy or whether they were sinners. In fact, he often went to the sinners to meet their needs, to help them and to restore them. Um, but since we are imitators of Christ, the Bible says, then we should respond in such a way. We should show love and kindness in that way. But second of all, people are made in the image of God. Not just church people. Okay, not just Baptist people. Not just Alaskan people. Not just American people. Not just white people, not just uh, any people. Put 
any qualifier in there. But people. Not just young people. Not just old people. Not just poor people. Not just rich people. All people are made in the image of God. I know there's a lot of division right now about the worth of life. But theologically, it's very simple. We all come from the same fathers. We all come from Adam and Eve. We all come from Noah and his family. Uh, We all stem from that. Therefore, we are all related. We are all family. There's one race, the human race, and we all derive from those first people who were made in the image of God. And even after the fall of man, once sin crept in, that did not destroy the image of God in humanity. Because in the New Testament, the book of James tells us that, let me read it. I should be up here. James 3, 7 through 10. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And so he's talking about our speech and how it's very hard to control what we say. You know, we may act one way in front of people, but then behind their back we say something different. And he's trying to rebuke us and correct us to stop being like that. Uh, That's called hypocrisy. That's called slander. That's called gossip. It's called a lot of things, but it's all evil. And the reason it's evil is because you're tearing down a person. And regardless of what that person has done, regardless of who that person is, regardless of their social standing or where they live or any other qualifier, they are made in the likeness of God. And so when you curse people, you curse God. Let that sink in. When you slander a human being, you slander God. I'm guilty. We probably all are. That does not excuse it, though. Everybody being guilty does not justify our actions. What we do is we say we don't want to hold people to to be our standard. We want the Word of God to be our standard. And so we try to live differently. We try to be the freak of nature who doesn't do what the people do because the Word of God has commanded us to do otherwise. People are made in the image of God. They bear the mark. In all the other foreign religions, especially the primitive ones from way back when, they would erect statues that would represent their gods. They would build these golden calves and these half-fish, half-man statues to represent these gods like Dagon and Baal, uh, Asherah. They would make Asherah poles So that they could worship those gods by honoring those statues. And the God Jehovah, Yahweh, he said, do not make any of those graven images. I'm not like those gods. He already has image bearers. Images have already been made. They're sitting in this room. And when you treat them with love, you treat God with love. When you treat the people out in this world with love, you treat God with love. But when you slander people, and when you tear people down, you're actually making a mockery of the God who created them. You're profaning the altar of the Almighty God 
by beating down and tearing down the people who he made to bear his image. So not only does Jesus love people, so we should love people. People are made in the image of God, and so we love people because we love God. But the last point is because it's how the gospel is advanced. It's how the gospel is advanced. When you show love, people become more receptive. It's been said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Okay, a lot of us have a lot of knowledge in our head. We've got the right answers, and they're good answers. I'm glad you've got them. I'm glad you can share the gospel. Uh, but if you don't show love along with it, no one's going to be receptive to it. Why did Jesus heal people? Why did Jesus feed 5,000? Why did Jesus calm the seas? Why did Jesus walk on the water? Why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Why, why, why did he do all this stuff? Lazarus was raised from the dead, but then he dies again. So what was the point? Jesus fed 5,000, but then they turned around in a few hours and were hungry again. What was the point? He was showing love so that people would be receptive to the gospel. He doesn't heal for healing's sake alone. He healed to show them a little glimpse of what eternity would look like under his rule and reign. And in the process was able to plant the seeds of the gospel so that they could grow and people could have a restored relationship with God the Father. That's why we love. Jesus did it. They're made in the image of God and so they're worthy of it. And because it helps us Share Jesus Christ with the lost and dying world. Okay, So I'm not an advocate of uh, humanitarian efforts apart from the gospel. Uh, there are a lot of churches who have removed the gospel and they go out to help people with no mention of Jesus Christ. And I'm like, what's the point? You're not going to turn the, the tide. I mean, G Jesus said it himself, the poor you have with you always. You're not going to get rid of poverty in this world. It's not going to happen. But you can show loving kindness and help people in need and plant the seeds of the gospel so that when this rotten, broken world comes to an end, they can enter into an eternity where they will never be hungry again. They will never be naked again. They will never be homeless again. They will never be orphaned again or widowed again or without the love and compassion of a family. They will have everything that they ever need forevermore. All because you shared a glass of water to a thirsty person. Or shared food with a hungry person in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why you should love your neighbor. The third question I want to answer this morning is how should you love your neighbor? Right in the text, the first thing it says is as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Last week I shared with you about Hillel, the rabbi who lived during Jesus' day. And Hillel was asked... Summarize the law while standing on one foot so that this Gentile guy would convert. And Hillel said, okay, on one foot, if there's something that you hate, don't do it to other people. That's the summary of the whole law. That's, what, that's the answer he gave in a paraphrase. And, and so he's basically saying the same thing that Jesus says here. Love your neighbor as yourself. If there's something you don't like, why would you turn around and do it to someone else? Okay, if you don't like people driving, well, so me and Isaac, uh, we went to Girdwood this weekend, spent two days and competed in a disc golf tournament all day in the rain yesterday. And uh, one of the things I noticed on the way there is traffic goes 40 miles an hour until there's 
a passing lane, and then everybody instantly goes 90. You can't pass anybody on the passing lane. And then as soon as it merges back together, we're back to 40. And I'm like, what's going on here? I should have at least passed one slowpoke who was holding everybody up, but I can't. I can't pass anybody. And I'm in the back, so I'm not the slowpoke. And so I don't know what's happening. I think people are like, you know, you're not going to pass me. You know, they speed up. I watched a couple of people almost wreck that way. A truck trying to pass on the right and another little car said, uh-uh, and they were gunning. I mean, 100 miles an hour. No one's going to let someone pass. And then they get back in one lane. Do, 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 do. I'm like, this is weird. Okay. So I don't like this, and so I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to pass people and then slow down to 40 after I pass them. I just, I wouldn't want people to do that to me. I'm not going to do that to them. That's how that thing works, okay? I don't want people playing really loud music out in their yard at midnight when I'm trying to sleep, so I'm not going to play really loud music out in the yard at midnight. Uh, at a hotel, same thing. I'm not going to go down the hall. I don't want someone's kid running down the hall screaming at 3 in the a.m. So I'm going to make sure my kids aren't running down the hall screaming at 3 in the a.m. That's how you love neighbor as yourself. You're always saying, would I like this if someone did it back to me? And you're putting yourself in someone else's shoes. You're empathizing. And some of us have lost the ability or never had it to empathize with other people, to consider how they think, to consider how they feel. And you're not going to be able to please everybody. I'm not saying you need to be a people pleaser. I'm saying if you were the person, what would you want them to do? And can you mirror that in their life? So how should you love your neighbor as yourself? But last week, when we looked at the great command, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. We saw that that was actually taken from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. He was quoting an Old Testament passage. The love your neighbor as yourself does not show up in Deuteronomy. It actually shows up in Leviticus 19. And so if you got your Bible, turn with me to Leviticus 19. Uh, I believe it will be on the screen behind me as well. And so I want to look at the original context because one of the things you need to know as a Bible student is oftentimes our Bible records a summary of what Jesus stated. Not every word, because like if you had a manuscript of everything I've said this morning, it would already be way longer than a chapter of your Bible. Okay, so you don't get a full-on manuscript of what Jesus said. You get a detailed summary, which is why sometimes you'll have little variations in the record. Um, but what you also need to understand that if someone grabs a text from the Old Testament and uses it, they're assuming you know the context and you're bringing all of that information with you as you interpret. Okay, and if you don't have a clue what Leviticus 19 says, then you're missing some of what Jesus was implying when he quotes it. Um, and so Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 9, we're asking, how should you love your neighbor? When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Where have you heard that recently? Okay, Pastor Scott's uh, message on Ruth, right? Which he'll be concluding, I believe, next week. And so Boaz, as he's being kind and leaving all this extra grain and barley for, uh, for Ruth to harvest... He's actually just obeying the scriptures that commanded this. He's not doing anything exceptional, but he's just doing what he's supposed to do as a Jew. 
And so, what and how that translates, you know, not all of us have, you know, if I were to leave the uh, scraps of my garden for people to glean, uh, they would starve like I would starve just by harvesting the crop itself because nothing's growing. Uh, lots of green is growing, but uh, like I've got lots of squash plants. If they ever start producing, I'll be able to feed the whole church. Uh, but so far, green, and I think I saw the first yellow flowers, and it's going to turn cold, and they're all going to die before I get a single you know, fruit off the thing. But how can this be applied today? Uh, it, it could be the food bank. It could be helping a family that, you know, someone loses their job, you take them over a care package. I remember my dad lost his job back when I was, I don't know, probably six, seven years old. I remember he lost his job and someone from the church uh, after church one day, they said, hey, can you swing by the house? And they loaded up four or five bags of groceries for us. I got to have food that I never got to eat <laughs> when my dad had a job. You know, I got the, you know, the Lucky Charms and you know, all the good stuff. Uh, but it, it was a blessing. And you know, I was just a kid, but I remembered it. You know, and it, uh, it showed the love of the church for my family. We can do the same thing. Uh, verse 10. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Same thing. But notice here, he doesn't say leave them for the poor only. He says leave them for the poor and the sojourner. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, the outsider coming through. That's very important. And when Jesus is quoting this in the uh, Good Samaritan story, What we have is an outsider here, except the outsider is the one doing the caring. Whereas Israel was supposed to be a blessing to all nations. They were supposed to be helping other people find their way to Yahweh, find their way to God through their love and their compassion and their truth. But here we have a Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 providing the way. Um, Moving on, it says... In verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So have integrity. If you want to love others, you will have integrity. You won't cheat them. You won't rob them. And sometimes you rob not by taking something that was theirs, but, by, but not giving something that is due to them. Uh, It will go on to talk about how you pay people. Uh, It says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. So if someone comes and does some work for you, don't hold on to that. If someone loans you five bucks, be as diligent as you can to pay them back as quick as you can. That's biblical. okay? Because I'm guilty of that. There have been times where someone loaned me something, I got busy, forgot about it, and then... You know, it's a year later, I remember it. I'm like, oh my goodness, they must think I I robbed them. Or either they forgot about it, but they might think that I tried to get away with something. Don't do that. Be quick to repay. Be quick to give people what's due them. And in fact, the Bible says, owe no man anything except to love him. In Romans 13, I believe that is. Owe no man anything except to love him. Okay, and so... uh, Debt is really a thing that the Bible is pretty sensitive about, and we shouldn't get into a lot of debts. We should uh, try as, as much as we can to just have a, a, an even balance sheet 
where we're loving people and we're giving to people and we're helping people, not enslaved to our debts where we're unable and bound from helping one another. And that's, that's a whole other topic for another day, um, but debt can enslave you where you can't show love because you're too busy trying to climb out of a hole. Um, it says in verse 14, You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your Lord. I am the Lord. Once again, there might be a certain demographic who you could take advantage of uh, if they were blind or they were deaf. And the Bible says don't do that. These are people that may need extra help. Not the, the blind man sitting there begging for you know, alms giving. You could sneak up and take a coin out of his cup if you wanted because he can't see it. But how wrong is that? You should be helping that person. You should be blessing that person. That's how you show love. Look for needs. Look for people that maybe either can't help themselves or have a hard time helping themselves and bear their burden. Paul also quotes uh, Leviticus 19 and Romans 13, 9. And so he's also aware and he speaks quite a bit on this topic of loving your neighbor. Uh, and he says to consider other people as more important than yourself. He almost takes it a step beyond what's being said here. Not love your neighbor as yourself, but consider others above yourself. And so this is how we love other people. Um, it's not finished yet. Almost done. It says, you shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. God loves balanced scales. He does not love partiality he hates partiality and so it says in the legal system when we're talking about justice we do not cater to the rich nor do we cater to the poor it can lean either way sometimes people are like oh I feel sorry for this person they're poor so let's stick it to the rich man he didn't do anything wrong but let's stick it to him because we want to help the poor guy no not in the legal system you know if you want to do charity do charity you should help the poor it's already stated that. But don't do that in the legal system. Okay? Don't do that in your politics. Okay? Let's keep things fair and even, or else the whole system falls apart. And God's saying it's not loving. You know, if you're if you're giving an advantage to one person, one demographic over another, you're actually unloving to the people you're cheating, even though you're trying to be loving to this demographic over here. And so we should have balanced scales. You shall not go around as a slanderer among the people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. This is another big one. It says you shall not hate your brother, but you shall reason frankly. Some of us are hating our brothers by being nice. You're not reasoning, frankly. There's a difference between loving and flattery. And some of us just want to be a people pleaser. And so we're a yes man. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is like Nathan the prophet did when David was living in sin and he pointed his finger in the face of the king and said, you are the man in sin. That's more loving 
than letting someone live a life in sin and to perish separated from God. So being loving to other people doesn't always come free of confrontation. Sometimes it involves a lot of confrontation. Um, but it needs to be done in a loving way. It needs to be done with tact. It needs to be done in a way that points people to God. Anytime you're pointing people to God in a loving way, you're demonstrating the love of Christ because that's what Jesus did. But Jesus wasn't always, quote, nice. He, he had a lot of confrontation. Uh, he turned over some tables. There is a time where turning over tables is the most loving thing that you could do because you've got to a breaking point where people are falling from God and they need some kind of wake-up call. And you got to be sensitive about when that is. You need to be spirit-led about when that is. But there may be a time where that is the solution and it's the most loving thing you can do. My dad used to tell me this, and I won't say it exactly like he said it because um, it's not church appropriate. Uh, but he would say, not everyone who dumps on you is your enemy. And not everyone who flatters you is your best friend. And he used to tell me that from way early on. And it's, it's biblical. Not everybody. In fact, the Proverbs have a lot to say about that. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. You know that guy that's really nice to you and he's always building you up and telling you how great you are and everything? He's actually trapping you. He's actually being the most hateful person in your life right now. And that guy that keeps telling you you need to fix your life and that guy that keeps telling you that you need to live differently and you need to love God more and you need to give your life to Christ and he's annoying you every single day of every hour. Maybe it's your dad, maybe it's your brother, maybe it's your wife, whoever it is. They're actually very loving to you right now. Very loving. The last question. When should you love your neighbor? The very last thing Jesus says when he's speaking to that man in Luke chapter 10. He said, go and do likewise. I take that to mean right now. Very short point. Right here. Right now. When you leave this room, or maybe even before, find someone to show love to. Find someone that you can put yourself in their shoes, and if you were them, you would want some help with something, and help them if you can. And I know it's a busy time of the year. I know we've all got really full schedules. Maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe we need to clear some stuff out so we can start helping some people. Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on this passage... He said, we got two commands here. The first one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Uh, that means to love God more than yourself. Because you're loving him with everything that you got. You're putting him first place. So you're coming second at best. He's saying the first command is to love God more than yourself. The second command is still very important and very uh, prominent is that you love people at least as much as yourself. Because this demonstrates real faith. 1 John 4, 20 tells us that if you say you love God and you don't love people, you make God out to be a liar. You cannot love God and not love people. Uh, a year or so ago, I preached a sermon in here over the horizontal and vertical components of faith. And a brief summary in closing is that for every abstract spiritual thing we have from God, 
God gives us a tangible, practical uh, application in life to demonstrate that. For one, you're spiritually baptized into the universal church, into the body of Christ by faith, but you can't see that. And so one of the ways we demonstrate that, and one of the ways we uh, acknowledge that is through water baptism into the local body, the church. Okay? It's a physical, visible manifestation of something invisible that's happened in heaven. The Bible says that you will know people's faith by their works. In the book of James chapter 2, it says faith without works is dead. If you don't have works, it's saying that your faith's not real. Because faith is invisible. It's hard to see. You can't measure it. And so the way that you measure it is through the works that people do. They go together. It is a horizontal application of a vertical truth. And that's what Jesus is saying here in this passage. The invisible part is loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But there is a way to visibly see that and measure that in this world. And that is how you love the image bearers of God. How you imitate Christ in showing love and compassion to the people around you every single day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Sound quality. Um, you're going to have the weird angle. I tried to put you on my good side. I had a real hard time deciding if there was a good side, so I just flipped the coin, and you're over on the left here. But uh, that's our live stream, so if you want them to hear you really well in the, on the internet, you sit right over there and sing into the phone. Uh, normally, that's all being taken care of from the back of the room, but for this particular week, it's not going to happen. So we're using the phone technology, we're getting a little bit of a late start, but God did bless us. Uh, he blessed us by sending us some help in a time of trouble. And so I got a call a week or two ago uh, from Texas saying, Hey, we came and uh, we sang for you last year. If you guys remember, this is Jan and Stephen Pate behind us. And uh, they said, we'd be more than willing to come and sing a few songs. I was like, could you do more than a few songs? Could you come and just take all the music away from me for that week? That would be such a blessing. And uh, they've agreed to do that. They did an awesome job this morning. They're wonderful musicians and just a, a great uh, godly couple who it's just uh, an honor to have and to work along with. Uh, so we just want to invite you to worship this morning with them taking the lead and turn it over to you guys. Let us have it.
Amen. Well, thank you guys once again for standing in the gap and being willing to lead us in worship. They've really set the tone for this morning's message uh, as we're continuing to talk about the great commandment found in Matthew chapter 22. So if you would turn with me there, uh, verse 34 through 40, we're going to read that again together and uh, conclude this series. When you find that in your Bibles, go ahead and stand with me. Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40. It reads, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that it is effective, living word that uh, will bring about change in your people as we read it and meditate upon it. I pray this morning, Lord, that uh, as uh, I get this opportunity, that I say nothing of my own accord, but solely point people to this text. Lord, point people to your heart and to the things that you would have us to uh, implement into our lives. Lord, help us to bring about the changes that bring glory to your name. And Lord, help us to uh, advance your kingdom. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, we talked about what it meant to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Jesus quoted that, and he was pulling from Deuteronomy. Uh, we saw it appear in the book of Mark and in the book of Luke. And so we've tried to compare these passages and find out exactly what is, what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart? What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your mind, all of your strength? That was the first and great command. Today we are going to look at the second half of that and try to answer the question, uh, how do we love our neighbor as ourself? In fact, I'm going to answer four questions this morning. Uh, according to this text. Who is our neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Why should you love your neighbor? How should you love your neighbor? And when should you love your neighbor? And after I get done answering those four questions from the passage, uh, we will conclude. And that'll be the end of this uh, series. And it should go back to Pastor Scott next week to most likely conclude uh, the book of Ruth. So as you know, you've been in a study. This is a little detour, but I believe that the principles that you will find here today will connect to the story of Ruth and Boaz in a very meaningful way. So Jesus quotes this passage, and uh, he's actually not pulling from Deuteronomy on the second half of this. When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting uh, Leviticus 19.18. Paul also quotes that passage in Romans 13, 9. So this is a very important passage to the Jewish people in Jesus' day. And uh, so he uses this love God and love neighbor, and he pieces them together just like many of the rabbis of Jesus' day would have taken those two concepts and fused them together to make this uh, very holistic commands summed down into a, a short phrase. And 
Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37 is a very important uh, passage to look at for exploring what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you would turn there, we'll also have it on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? I love that, how Jesus never really answers a question. Uh, not her, A lot of times he doesn't. He asks another question. He makes you answer the question. In fact, that's what parables are intended to do. It's intended to get you to think about the circumstances and come to your own conclusion uh, by pulling you outside of the situation and make you look at it from a, a, a different perspective. And so here's Jesus doing that once again in this passage. He says, what is written in the law and how do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he gives the same answer Jesus gives when Jesus is answering the question in Matthew. Matthew, someone asks Jesus and Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor. And now Jesus asks this guy, a different person, what do you think the greatest command is? And he answers the same way. So this is common for those who study the Torah and those who study the scriptures. They know that loving the Lord and loving neighbor go together and they sum up all of the law and commandments. And Jesus approves of his answer. He even says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is where the story takes a little bit of a twist. Okay, he is asking the question, and it's the reason I'm asking this question and answering it this morning, because it's a very natural response. When God tells us, you have to love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, it's very natural to say, well, qualify that. Who is my neighbor? Because there's all people in the back of our mind, right, that we don't really want to love. Or maybe we don't want to hate them, we just... We'd rather just pretend they don't exist altogether. And uh, we try to justify ourselves. They're not really my neighbor. They live more than five miles away. That's not a neighbor. Uh, that's exactly what's happening in this passage. This guy is trying to justify himself. It doesn't tell us anything else about this situation. But if you're trying to justify yourself, that means you feel like in the back of your mind, you might be breaking this command to love your neighbor as yourself. So he says... Define that, please. Who is my neighbor? Who do I not have to love? Because I would really not have to love this person in my mind. And so I'm trying to justify myself. I love Jesus' exchange here. And it, it's always perplexed me. I, I can't quite articulate everything that happens here. But Jesus doesn't answer the question. He never answers the question here. When we read what we're about to read, he gives him a story once again. And then he turns around and asks this man a question, but he asks him a completely different question. So he doesn't even have the man answer the same question that he asked. He asks him a different question. And the story just kind of ends there and leaves it open. And so let's read what happens. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by a chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Okay, so here's Jesus' answer. The man straight out asks, who do I have to love? Who do I not have to love? I have two categories. I want really clear delineation here. I want to know who I have to love and who I don't have to love to be approved by God. And Jesus gives a story giving three examples. And the first example is a priest. There's a man, we don't know the man's name. He's nameless because this is probably a made-up story on the spot. There are a lot of situations like this in Jesus' day. But he's not pulling one particular situation out. He's just making this story up to illustrate a point. So he says there's a man. He gets robbed and left for dead. He gets beaten and he's left for dead. And a priest. Guy number one comes by. Here's the first possible option of demonstrating who is your neighbor. Uh, the priest walks by, and as you know, the priests are responsible for mediating between God and man. They have a very prominent role in the Jewish religion. They are to go to God with sacrifices and go to man with the words of God, and they go back and forth. They are a mediating uh, entity. And here is a man suffering, dying, and the priest just walks on by the other side of the street. And you'd think that as one mediating the goodness of God, he would at least inquire, but he does not. He just goes about his business. And so the second person comes along. Perhaps maybe if you're reading this as a Jewish person, you'd say, well, the priest has so much on his plate that he couldn't possibly take the time to help every uh, stranded stranger that he comes across. And so it, it's not really his duty. It's someone else's duty. And so the next guy in the story is a Levite. Now, Levites are... Uh, of the priestly tradition in a sense. Not every Levite is a priest, and it's certainly not the high priest. There is a priest, the high priest. There are a group of priests who rotate and minister in the temple or tabernacle. And then there are the Levites who are the supporting cast for the priests. But the Levites are a group of people who were set aside for the purpose of ministering on behalf of God. They were not given land allotments when the land was distributed to the 12 tribes of Israel. They were set up in priestly cities around uh, the country in the different uh, regions where people had inherited land. And so every uh, group would have priests that they could go to if they needed help, uh, if they needed to offer up an offering. You weren't supposed to do your own offering. You were supposed to use the Levites and the priests to uh, burn your offerings for you. And so everybody had access to God. Everybody, that is, except this dying man on the side of the road, because the Levite just passes him by and goes about his business too. If the priest was too busy, the Levite should have at least had time to cater to something so lowly, but he doesn't take the time to even find out what's wrong, and he just keeps walking. Jesus gives us a third example, though. And the third example is a Samaritan. Now, if you don't know anything about Samaritans and the relationships that they had with the Jewish people, 
just know that it was not good. It'd be like saying, you know, a terrorist walked by or something to us in our modern situation. But the Samaritans and the Jewish people for many, many years had been rivals. They looked down on each other. They thought each other were socially outcast. Uh, it, was, it was not even thought worthy to pass through each other's land. And so a lot of times people would travel around the region of Samaria just to avoid contact with them. Uh, the Samaritans uh, formed back when the northern kingdom in the Old Testament collapsed under the Assyrian attack in 721 BC. And after that, the Assyrians kind of moved in and co-mingled with these Jewish people. And rather than keeping a very separate and segregated racial identity, they cohabitated and mingled and married these Assyrians. And so what you end up with is with a half Jew, half Assyrian, and they're the enemy. So it's like they married the enemy because they destroyed uh, the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians come in and destroy the southern kingdom. But the southern kingdom does their best to keep it together and they keep a pure identity. Uh, so when they come back to the promised land, they find all of these Samaritans there, all these half Assyrian, half Jews. And they're like, no, you're not a part of us anymore. And so from that point on, you know, they set up their own worship sites. They don't go to the Jerusalem temple and there is hostility between these two groups of people. So Jesus, he's, he's uh, crossing a line here with this illustration. He's saying a Samaritan comes in. And a Samaritan sees, this, we presume, a Jewish man who's dying. And he decides to help him. Not only does he care for him and show love and compassion by binding up his wounds, he takes him to an inn and gives him a place to stay. And then he even extends a line of credit so that this man, if he runs out of money and needs more provisions, he will have it taken care of by this Samaritan. I mean, this would not have sat well. This story would have really twisted some people's stomach. And so Jesus asks him a question straight out. He doesn't say, who is your neighbor? Answer, go. No, he asks a different question. Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And I'm sure this young lawyer sat there and gritted his teeth and just barely eked out the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. He has to say it. He knows deep down inside it's true. He knows that this Samaritan acted more in accordance with God's character than the priest or the Levite. And so what Jesus does is he doesn't answer the question, who is your neighbor? Because the answer to that would be a person or maybe a, a group of people within a certain proximity or maybe a certain type of people. Like who is your neighbor? Uh, Baptists. Who is your neighbor? Christians. Who is your neighbor? Uh, Soldat. Tenonians, Kenaians, Alaskans, you know, that could be the answer. It's this very defined group of people, but Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't give a group of people as an answer. Instead, he answers the question by saying, which proved to be a neighbor. He doesn't look for a noun here. He looks for a verb. He says, which one was neighborly? And so the heart of the matter is there's not a set group of people that are defined as your neighbor. If there is an opportunity to show love and compassion 
on behalf of God, then you take that opportunity and you meet the need. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to get across. That's why Jesus went through the countryside healing people and providing food and providing uh, different miracles that were meeting the basic needs of people because he was a neighborly type of guy. Because God is loving and Christ is loving, um, it was showing us what we were to do. And so when we ask ourselves, who is the neighbor? The, the answer is everybody. If you go out into the world today and you find a need, you should try to meet it if it's within your ability. Uh, you should not leave it unmet. If, if nothing else, you should be a praying person over that need if you have nothing to give. And so that is the question asked. I, I might put it in a different perspective. You could ask this question. Who has been a neighbor to you? Who has been neighborly to you? Have you ever been in a need have you ever been in want and someone stepped up to the plate and they did something to help you? Were you appreciative of that? And if so, that should cause you to turn around and to do the same uh, for other people who are in need. I've had so many people from this church step up to the plate when I was in a time of need. Um, I had, as you know, last week I gave the funny lawnmower story about the lawnmower that now drives backwards. I had several people from the church step up and try to help. They didn't. Uh, some of them helped some. At least it moves now. Uh, but we never got fixed. But at least they offered their time and they came out and they tried. And so I was very appreciative of that. That, that meant a lot to me for those who were willing to, to step up and give time. Time's very valuable. I know that w when you step onto my property to help me with something, you are really making a sacrifice. Uh, and the same is goes in reverse. You know, if I step on your property to help you with something, there are other things I could be doing. And so that is a measure of love. I've had people come over and work on my electrical before when things went awry. I know Sam Larson, uh, he shows up every once in a while and does something that takes him five minutes and it would take me five years. Um, but I'm very appreciative of that because that is a sign of love. Uh, Greg Moore, Rick Huddleston, they show up and they, you know, something's needs carpentry work, they're there and they fix it, or at least give me advice, they do something, and their time is very valuable, but they're constantly, if they're not helping me, they're helping someone else. I hate doing the name drop game because I'm going to miss somebody, um, but there are people, Becky, who watches our kids, you know, when we're in a time of need, we need someone to watch the kids, um, and she doesn't just watch them, she disciples them, which there's no greater love than that that someone would watch my kids and, and teach them of Jesus Christ. Um, so I, I could go on and on. Who is my neighbor? Those who have shown love and kindness and have sacrificed on my behalf. Uh, that is the kind of question you need to be asking yourself. And you should turn around and do likewise. The second question we have this morning is, why should you love your neighbor? You know, why should I? You may be thinking to yourself, you know, I've worked really hard to get to where I'm at. I've worked really hard to get my money. I've saved. I've not squandered. I've just, uh, I've stored up and stored up and stored up. I made really uh, tough sacrifices to get to where I'm at. And now there's somebody in need and we don't even know why they're in need. It doesn't say why this guy's in need. He might have been stupid. He may have been intoxicated and riding his horse backwards through the countryside and some bandits thought, hey, let's take advantage of this guy. We don't know. He might have been riding by himself like you're not supposed to do in this time period. And uh, he might have just been asking to be robbed. 
You know, he was just being stupid, maybe. We don't know. We don't have those details in the text. But the fact is, it doesn't always matter. Um, the fact is, a need is a need, and we're all in different situations. We're not always going to be able to justify why we shouldn't help somebody who is in need. And uh, so we ask ourselves, why should you help your neighbor? Yes, you've worked hard. Yes, you've made sacrifices. And yes, this person that is in need, you may feel that they're not worthy to be helped. It should not come at a cost to you, an expense to you to help them. Maybe not. Maybe not in like practical human terms. But what do the scriptures say about this type of situation? Why should you help your neighbor? Why should you love your neighbor? Uh, the first reason is very simple, and it's enough said we could move on, but we won't. Uh, the first reason is because Jesus loved. Jesus loved his neighbors. Jesus showed love when no one else deserved it. The Bible says we were at enmity with God. That means we were enemies. We were against God. Before we were saved, we lived for ourselves and ourselves alone. We did not give a care in the world about who God was and about what he wanted. And sometimes we get selfish even as Christians and still act that way in a momentary lapse. And Jesus loved us wholeheartedly even in that undeserving position. He went around healing people that were sick. He went around uh, providing the needs of people uh, providing for them with food and other uh, items that they needed. And it was loving and compassionate. And so why would we be inclined to do anything otherwise? He was loving, and we call ourselves by the name of Christ. We say that we are imitators of Christ. We call ourselves Christians. Little Christ is what that means. And yet we are going to act completely the opposite of what he did? That doesn't make sense. That's not consistent. If we want to be consistent with the name Christian, then we have to try to the best of our ability to act as Christ acted. And he was loving, and so we should be loving to other people. If that's not enough for you, the second reason you should be loving to other people is because they are made in the image of God. Every one of them made in the image of God. The old, the young, the rich, the poor... The American, the foreigner, the black, the white, you name it, they are made in the image of God. We see that in the book of Genesis. Uh, in fact, there's, there's a lot of you know, racial issues going on in our country today. And theologically, just to speak to that really briefly, uh, the Bible teaches that we are all made in the image of God from the beginning. We all come from Adam and Eve, and therefore we are all of the same race. We may look different, uh, we may have different cultures, but we all are human, and we, all, we are all image bearers of the Father. He has put his mark, his stamp upon every one of us, and therefore each life should be valued and deemed worthy, regardless of, of any other circumstances. Uh, we also see that in the life of Noah, uh, you know, everybody dies out and you've got Noah and his family. So we all come from Noah and his family as well. We have common ancestors and therefore we are of the same race and we are brothers and sisters. And then as Christians, it, it enhances that relationship because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And you may say, well, yeah, that was all good before the fall of man. Uh, but now look at how people have become just completely... Uh, 
sinful and evil, so we no longer bear the mark of God. Wrong. I know it seems that way. There are people out there that it, it does not look like they are, uh, they are imaging God in any sort of comprehensible way. But the fact is, the Bible teaches that even after the fall, people are still made in the image of God. Uh, read with me in the book of James, chapter 3, verse 7. It says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. What James is saying in this passage, he's speaking in the context of how evil our speech can be. We may say something loving to somebody to their face and then turn around and bash them uh, when they are not within earshot. We may uh, act cordial to them in person, but then we're tearing them down, slandering, gossiping, and ruining their reputation when they are not present. And that kind of behavior James is calling out as inconsistent with the Christian faith because you are using your mouth that God has made to glorify God on one hand but then you turn around and you curse people with your mouth the same mouth that was honoring God you curse people with that same mouth and you forget that people are image bearers of God and so when you are cursing people you are cursing God that's what James is saying they bear the image of the Father. And I won't ask for a show of hands for those who are guilty because I don't want to have to raise mine. But we've done it. We've slandered and mocked people and in doing so we have profaned our God. All the heathen religions of old that we read about in the Old Testament, all of the pagans, they would set up images of their God. For Baal, they would set up these golden statues. For Asherah, they would set up these poles where they would bow before. Um, for Dagon, they would have statues of the half fish, half man. Um, there are so many gods that we could cover. But they all have images. And the people would bow down and pray to the image. Because the image, if you honored the image, you were honoring the God whom that image represented. When... Judaism was formed when the Hebrews were uh, called out and they began worshiping Yahweh and only Yahweh. That was, that was radical. They were one of the only monotheistic societies to ever exist. Everybody else had multiple gods, multiple images everywhere. But not only did they only serve one God, but they did not make images to him. That was the second command. Do not make any graven image. You cannot make images of God. And why? Why is that such a bad thing? Because there's already an image of God. Go back to Genesis and it says that God made them male and female and they made him in his image. You see, you don't honor our God the God of the Bible, by creating a statue or some kind of monument and bowing down before it. You don't do that. You honor our God in the way that you treat His image bearers, people. And when you fail to do that, when you are not loving to people, you are not loving to God. The third reason, if that's not enough for you, 
The third reason that we should love our neighbor, not only did Jesus love his neighbors, not only are people made in the image of God and therefore they deserve to be loved, and not only does the Bible tell us to owe no man anything except to love one another, but thirdly, it's how the gospel is advanced. The gospel is advanced through the love of Christ. That's why Jesus went and healed the sick. He went and he healed the sick and he raised Lazarus from the dead and he fed the 5,000. But guess what? The next day, the 5,000 were hungry again. Guess what? A few years later, Lazarus died again. Guess what? The people that he healed got sick again and died again. You're not getting out of this world without those things happening to you. That's life. And Jesus did not come and provide a little refreshment just as a pick-me-up to get you to the next day of pain and suffering. That's not why he did the miracles. He performed miracles so that he could plant the gospel seed of the kingdom of God. And in doing so, people would be receptive. Because people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And the fact is, when Jesus showed them the love by meeting their needs, then they were ready to listen. And not, all, and not everybody's receptive. You may show the love of God to somebody and then share the gospel and they may spit in your face. That happens. But they're much more likely to be receptive when they know that your gospel message drives your practices and drives your actions. When they see that it's real and that it produces a loving, caring spirit, then be, they'll be more receptive to it. And that's why we are so effective when we go and do disaster relief as a denomination. Something bad happens in the world. We send a bunch of um, medical teams. We send a bunch of uh, food uh, workers to provide meals. We send that kind of stuff and then we share the gospel and we get a lot of results that way. Because we're showing the love in our actions and the gospel message accompanies it. Now I'm not a big fan of, there, there are some churches out there that they're like, we're just going to go do good things for people. We're just going to go help people. We're going to clothe people. We're going to feed people. We're going to do all this. Uh, we're not even going to mention Jesus. And I'm like, what's the point? Once again, they're going to get hungry again. They're going to die. It's, it's, it's in vain. Like, I'm all for helping somebody, but as Christians, we have a higher calling than just getting somebody through another meal. We have to, while we can, while it, in this time of urgency, we've got to share Jesus with them. Give them a meal, by all means, you need to. Give them a fresh glass of water if they don't have anything to drink. But share Christ in the process. Otherwise, it's all in vain. Ten million years from now, that, that meal won't matter. Unless that was the meal that opened the door to the gospel. Then that meal will matter a lot. It'll matter more than any other meal they've ever had besides the meal that they eat with Jesus Christ on the last day. The third question. We've got who is your neighbor? Why should you love your neighbor? How should you love your neighbor? How is it done? The first way we know that it's done is it says in the text, love your neighbor as yourself. If you like something, then do that to other people. If you hate something, then don't do that to other people. It's as simple as that. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I told you the story last week about the rabbi Hillel, who was asked, 
sum up the law while standing on one foot, and he basically said, if you don't like something, if you hate something, then don't do it to other people. This is a summary of the law. Simple as that. There's a lot of laws out there. You know, don't covet your neighbor's ox is a law, but that's summed up and don't do to others what you wouldn't want them doing to you. You get too covetous, you know, too much covetousness inside of you. You start coveting too much. You might be inclined to take, or you might be inclined to uh, spend money that should have been used to feed your family on something that you just want really bad. You know, there's a lot of ways that that tenth uh, commandment is actually violating the principle of love neighbor as yourself. Okay, don't kill. That's a commandment. If you kill someone, you're not loving the neighbor as yourself because you would not want to be killed. So don't kill. I'm not going to go through all the commandments, but they pretty much summed up by these two. Love God, love neighbor. The first four commandments are love God. You know, honor God. Don't create graven images. Don't uh, use the Lord's name in vain and keep the Sabbath. That's honoring God. The rest of the commandments are, are loving mankind. And these two commands are a summary of all the commandments we find in the scriptures. So how do we love our neighbor? Learn to put yourself in their shoes. This is called empathizing. And some of you lack the ability to do this. Okay, I don't know who. I'm not name calling and I don't have anybody in mind right now. I just know it's a fact. I know it's a fact because I drove to uh, Girdwood uh, on Friday and we spent the night. Me and Isaac played a disc golf tournament uh, yesterday. And here's what I noticed on the way to Girdwood. 40 mile an hour traffic. 40 miles. Uh, it's, it, should, it should be more like 60, but they were going 40. And then all of a sudden, a passing lane came up. And I got in the passing lane. I revved it. I mean, oh, I'm going to pass these people. You couldn't pass anybody. All of a sudden, everybody goes 90. Everybody. Everybody. In the passing, I, I swear, I did not pass anybody on that trip because they would rev their engines and everybody would go 90 and then it'd go back to single file line and guess what speed we'd go back to? 40. You'd think that somebody in there was the slowpoke and everybody would be going around the slowpoke who's holding us up. But what I found out is there is no slowpoke. There's just a jerk at the front who's not willing to be passed and he's saying, you know, he's not thinking, how would I like to be treated? He's thinking, how can I get the upper hand here? Okay, He wants to make sure that nobody gets by him. Nobody wants to be passed. I saw two people almost die in a standoff trying to get by. When there's a camper on the right up here, and there's two guys in this truck wants to pass on the right. So he guns it, and this little white car says, uh-uh, I'm not going to be passed. And so he guns it, and they're going 100 miles an hour. I'm like, truck, you better just give in, or you're going to smash into this camper. And that's the way it works. But if you are able to empathize, you would say, you know what? I'm holding this guy up, so I'm going to slow down and let people pass me. It might go against the grain. It might hurt my pride. But you know what? It's what I would like to be done to me. And so I'm going to do it for them. Maybe that means you know, other sacrifices. Maybe it's not on the road. Maybe it has to do with the money that you spend. Yes, you could use that money on a new boat, uh, but maybe you see a need that you really feel burdened. You see this opportunity to help, and so you want to help. Uh, 
Uh, you never know what it is, um, but each of you will be presented an opportunity to be neighborly, like the Samaritan uh, who meets the need. And so you need to be willing to love them as you would want to be loved in return. Another thing you need to know about this passage is when Jesus quotes this, love neighbor as yourself. He's not pulling from Deuteronomy, but from Leviticus 19. So if you'll turn with me, Leviticus 19 has the context that Jesus is pulling from. And when you read your Bible, you need to know that they do not have like dictation, like we would have in a courtroom, someone sitting there typing every word that's being said. You get really brief summaries of what Jesus taught. Like if you were to type out every word that I've said in this sermon so far, it would fill like 20 pages of your Bible already. And Jesus probably spoke a lot longer than me because they had a lot better attention spans back then. And so when you get a biblical account of like the Sermon on the Mount, you're getting bullet points and you're getting very reduced summaries of what was actually being said. And that's why when you've got two different authors telling you what was said, you might get some variation because they're summarizing it to keep it within the very valuable confines of their writing space. They didn't have a million sheets of paper. They didn't have a laptop to type it all up on and uh, you know, one terabyte hard drive to store it all. They had a very expensive sheepskin or papyrus plant. And so they would write these things down and they would summarize. But they expected the reader to know that if they were quoting from the Old Testament, you didn't just take the quote, you were supposed to be pulling all of that information that was in the context and pulling that with you as you listened to the sermon, as you listened to Jesus speak. And so Jesus quotes, love your neighbor as yourself. That's one little snippet, but let's read the passage in which it uh, appears. In verse 9, and we're answering the question here, how do you love your neighbor? So these things are implied in that statement. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. This should sound very familiar because Boaz in the Ruth story was honoring this code. He was listening to the command and so he was leaving out grain for Ruth uh, to gather up so that she could take it home to widow Naomi. And uh, so Boaz was a righteous man simply not because he was going above and beyond. He was just doing what the Bible says to do. Very simply. And it also says you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So not just with the barley and the grain, but with the grapes as well. You leave them. And it says you leave them for the poor and the sojourner. That means the foreigner, the one traveling through. That might have been a Samaritan. And they wouldn't have wanted to leave any grain for a Samaritan, you know, in Jesus' day. But he's implying that the foreigner, the sojourner, the one traveling through, has rights by God to some of that excess wealth that you have. Because you are to owe no man anything except to love him. And so your love should be to meet the needs of these people who are hurting and are in pain and have uh, these, these physical desires that aren't being met in the world at that time. 
Uh, so think about that and how that can apply today. I know that if someone were to come into my threshing floor in my garden, they would find nothing because I've not reaped anything but two little beans, I think. And I've got some squash plants that have flowers on it. But by the time they start producing squash, there'll be snow on the ground. So I have no expectation. So we can't really apply that here. Maybe in Texas, maybe you guys have big old fields full of ripe tomatoes and you can leave some out for people, give some of those to people in need. But you're not going to survive off of my produce. My produce comes from Fred Meyer. Uh, I wish it didn't. I really love those fresh grown tomatoes. But you can find a way to meet the needs, the hunger needs of people around you. I remember when I was five or six years old, my dad lost his job unexpectedly. And uh, we went to church that night, Sunday night, and uh, one of the guys there, the older gentleman, said, hey, his name was Jeff. He said, hey, would you guys come over uh, on your way home? He lived just down the road from the church. And as soon as uh, we pulled in there, he brought out four or five giant bags of groceries um, just to give to us because he had heard. And I think uh, inside of the bag was also a wad of cash. And I, I was five or six. I wasn't hurting. You know, I didn't know anything. All I knew is I wanted to play. But I remember that. Uh, I, sh- I saw compassion. I knew it was there. I knew that somebody loved our family. And so that was a way that our needs were met that day. Um, so uh, verse 11 says, You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. This seems simple, but uh, sometimes we do this. Uh, Yeah, you're not supposed to rob anybody, but that doesn't just mean taking things that are theirs and calling them your own. Sometimes that means withholding things that belong to somebody else. You know, uh, you borrow that rod and reel and you never give it back until three years later when you're just trying to clean out your house and get rid of the junk. Um, you, uh, you have someone come work for you, uh, but you don't have the money on hand to pay them, and it takes you months to give them their wages. The Bible speaks about that kind of stuff. That, that is, in a sense, robbing the person. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that you should be quick to settle up. Uh, and in doing so, you're showing love. If that person's not important to give their stuff back when you borrow it, or if they're not important enough to pay them when they do a job for you, then that means that you don't really love them. You don't really love them because you would want to be paid. You would want to get your stuff back. And yet, when the table's turned and we're the borrower, we sometimes forget how to empathize and we just hang on to things and hang on to things. And by the way, if I've got something of yours, I've forgotten about it, so you need to remind me so I can settle up, okay? Because I, I know it happens. I know it. I've found things before and I was like, oh, oh no, let's destroy this and pretend it never happened. <laughs> it would be too embarrassing to give it back now. No, we got to give it back. We got to do the right thing. Love your neighbor. It says, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Some people find a group of people who they can take advantage of. The blind, it would be easy to steal his stuff because he can't see you doing it but not only should you not do that because that's super wrong he needs that stuff 
but you should be helping him overcome those obstacles. Same with the deaf, or this is just a few examples. There are other people in the world who can't quite make ends meet because of some hindrance that they have, and you shouldn't take advantage of that. You should step in and try to help those people. That's another way that you can show love. Uh, that's why James says that true religion uh, is showing kindness and helping the widows and the orphans. Because those are two uh, people groups who sometimes cannot make ends meet. They have a difficult time, especially in Jesus' day. You know, this is before Social Security. This is before uh, they had a lot of these government programs that were available to help people out. And so if you didn't have family members to provide for you, you didn't eat. And the Christians were very, um, they were very right in meeting needs of those people because they weren't going to be able to do it on their own. Uh, it says in verse 15, we're almost done in this passage. It says, you shall uh, do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Okay, so in legal matters, you might in your charity give to the poor and not the rich. That's expected, right? You don't really need to give to the rich. They've got the money. Okay, so it's those who have more should be more inclined to give more in their charitable givings. But when it comes to legal matters, to right and wrong and to you know, criminal punishment and that sort of thing, there should be no partiality here. Uh, he even calls it out. He says, do not show partiality to the poor or to the rich. You should not let the rich off just because they're rich and say, oh, you uh, broke the law here, but we're just going to give you a slap on the hand because we know how influential you are and we know how uh, important your money is to our community or our organization. And the poor guy's left in the dirt because he's got nothing to offer. No, that's wrong. On the other side, there are some organizations that might actually bend the laws for the poor. Say, oh, you're poor. Uh, we want to help you out. Yeah, you broke the law, but it's okay because you're poor or you, you don't have uh, the things that these people over here have. No, that's wrong too. It should, in matters of morality and legality, we're looking for justice. And justice is supposed to be blind. It's supposed to ignore those matters, the rich and the poor and anything else, and just look at what is actually being done. Okay, that's loving. If I rob the rich to give to the poor, I'm not being loving to the rich. And if I ignore the poor and put all my attention on the rich, I'm not being loving to the poor. Okay, so we should show love to all groups of people, especially in these matters of legality and such. It goes on to say, you shall not go around as a slanderer among the people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. We should be pro-life in every sense of the word. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. This is an important one for us. Okay, we're all thinking lovey, lovey, lovey right now, right? And... When we think of love, we think of nice. Okay, but this doesn't say be nice. It says you shall, oops, sorry, wrong. It says you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with him. If you don't reason frankly with him, you're hating him. Reasoning frankly, that's a 
way of saying confront him. If your brother's in sin, if someone in this building is living in sin, a well-known sin, and you don't confront them about that sin, you're not loving them. You're hating them in your heart. And that's challenging because we want to be nice. And we're becoming more and more libertarian as a Western society. We do the live and let live. That's why we legalize things left and right. We say, if it don't hurt anybody, just let them do it. And so even as Christians, we're becoming more of like, just let people do their own thing. But no, in the church especially, those who live under the banner of Christ, we have a responsibility to keep each other accountable. And accountability is love. You don't have to be a jerk about it. Um, but if I'm living in sin, I, I respect someone lovingly coming to me and pointing that out, that I am failing to live up to the standard of God. And so uh, that, that is loving. Jesus wasn't always nice. There were, uh, there were times where Jesus turned over the tables, you know, and took whips and drove people out of the temple. That wasn't a nice day by our standards of nice. But it was necessary to get the point across that God's house was a holy house and was not to be used and abused for monetary gain. And so that was Jesus' response on that occasion. Not every occasion do we get out the whips. By the way, I have Becky Moore's whip. That just came into my mind. i got to return that. She loaned it to me at Bethlehem. It's been sitting in my office. Becky, wherever you are, I've got your whip. Greg's like, don't give her back the whip. But uh, <laughs> I borrowed it. i got to give it back. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> She said she has lots of them, so I'm sure. I don't know what she does with all those whips. But what we get from this passage is we are not being loving when we practice flattery. Many of us practice flattery. We say something nice, we build people up when we don't really even mean it, even if we see those shortcomings and those failures. And the Bible tells us in Proverbs 25.5 that a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. If you flatter your neighbor, you're not being neighborly. You're not being a loving neighbor. You're being a hateful neighbor. And the Bible tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. We don't need lip service. Love comes from truth. Love comes from meeting needs and love comes from pointing people to God. And so pointing people to God. If you're pointing someone to Jesus Christ, you are never being unloving. You might could change your tactics sometimes, but at the end of the day, you are being loving. It says, finally, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You do not get to get even with people. You do not get to hold a grudge. Romans chapter 12 says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. If you take vengeance into your own hand, you've taken what's God's. You've robbed God. Do not steal what is God's. He gets to have vengeance, not you. You have one responsibility, to love God and love neighbor as self. My dad used to say, Not everyone who treats you poorly is your enemy and not everyone who treats you well is your friend and I found that to be true and when we use the word poorly uh, it means sometimes it feels like someone's mistreating you and actually they're just trying to make you better they're trying to correct something in you and the Bible teaches that here in this passage 
The final question we have, and we'll wrap up, is when should you love your neighbor? The very end of Luke chapter 10, Jesus responds and says to the man after he gives the story, go and do likewise. I don't hear any cause for pause there. There's no reason to put a delay on the action. He's saying go and do it. And so today, that's the charge that we have. Go and be loving. Find a way. Find someone to help. Find someone to show love to because that's your responsibility as the church. That's your responsibility as a Christian. You're having a hard time right now thinking of a way to show love. I've got one really small way that you can show love. Uh, Jamie Jost just asked me this morning. She says, hey, I'm coming in and making coffee every Sunday morning. And I know I'm going to be gone off and on in the summer here. And so if I could just have someone come and help rotate through. All you got to do is show up 15 minutes early and make some coffee. And if you don't, what's going to happen is there won't be any coffee. And I can't think of anything more unloving than no coffee. Okay, so if you want to share the love of Christ, very simple way. I know it seems small, but it's actually, it, it becomes a big deal. It shows people that they're valuable, that you know, we're welcoming to them. And uh, we want them to come in and to be awake for the service and not fall asleep. All that good stuff. Uh, it's a small task, but you can find other tasks. There are other things you could do. And your own life is going to present you with the opportunity to show the love of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. That's saying that you're loving God more than yourself. Because it's, you're giving him first place in everything. So you're going to come in as second naturally. And so you love God more than self. But the second part of that command is to love neighbor as yourself. And both of those are very lofty endeavors. Putting God above you and putting other people up to your level, that's a hard thing to do. And so Spurgeon brought those two ideas together and pulled them out. And I will conclude with this. Loving God cannot happen apart from loving people. 1 John 4.20 says that if you say that you love God, but that you hate your brother, you make God a liar. You cannot love God without, in turn, as a response, love other people. They go hand in hand. About a year ago, I preached a sermon uh, about the vertical and horizontal aspects of Christianity. And, it, and so, in summary, for every invisible, intangible thing, abstract thing that God gives us in the Scriptures, there is a horizontal, tangible, practical application that shows that invisible thing. So, for instance, when you're saved, you're baptized in the Spirit, you are put into the church universal, the body of Christ, but yet you can't see that. You know, when I believe, you can't see, you can trust me, but you can't see that I've actually been put into the, the body of Christ. And so the visible way to illustrate that so that everybody can know is believer's baptism. You're baptized by water. You can't see the spirit, but you can see the water. And you're put into the visible church, the local church, uh, which is like us here. We can see each other. We know each other. It's visible, tangible. It represents the invisible thing going on. Okay, another example is faith and works. The Bible says in the book of James that faith without works is dead. You say you've got faith, prove it. 
Okay, faith is invisible. No one can see your faith. Your faith is useless and worthless and pointless in the world unless it is accompanied by some physical, visible, tangible thing. And so that's why James tells us, you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith. But if there's a real faith, there will be real works. Because there's always a horizontal dimension to your vertical relationship with God. Jesus brings that out here. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And there's no way in the world that we could actually see that or measure that. And so the way that we can measure it is by the second command that is like unto it. Love your neighbor. Everyone knows if you're loving your neighbor. We only know if you're loving God is if in the name of Christ you are loving your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for our worship. Lord, I pray that you would just forgive us where we fail you in this uh, challenge this morning. And Lord, that you would give us, present us opportunities to be loving and to show kindness. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would just move among your people. Let the Spirit uh, carry us into uh, places that make us uncomfortable. And Father, let your word drive us. Uh, Let us not be distracted or have any hindrance to obeying you. Uh, But Lord, let your word settle in our minds and hearts so that we might bring honor and glory to you when we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we have our invitation and a time of singing praises to the Lord.